Wow, it is great to be here. And uh, it's, a, it's a privilege, really, just to stand behind this pulpit and uh, share it with the other men who deliver the Word of God each week and have done so over the years. And we were praying about that actually earlier uh, as pastors together. And it's just good, you know, to turn the page from 2022 to 2023, focusing on God's mission for our lives together. There's just something special about that. And so uh, let me just jump right in tonight. I don't have uh, a lot of time. And uh, I just want to share a story. It's a memory, actually. Since we're in the holiday season, my memory involves an event that occurred over at my grandmother's house. And this was a recurring event, actually. And maybe some of you have similar Memories. We would often go over to my grandmother's house around Christmas time, and we would see the cousins and catch up on family. Now, lining the walls at my grandmother's house were were photos, and and I just assumed that everybody's grandmother's house is like this, just photos all along the wall. And my grandfather had built this house actually with his own hands, and they didn't have a lot of money, but just over the years, he built it piece by piece, and wood paneling walls, and and there are photos, some large, some small, and each grainy photo of my mother and her bob haircut, or her sisters and their beehives, bell-bottom jeans, every photo told a story. The seriousness of my grandfather's eyes, his dark hair, which I never really knew him when he had dark hair, but I could see the photograph of his dark, coiffed hair pulled back, and my grandmother's gentle and caring eyes. I even had a photo. I I was a toddler, shaggy blonde hair, and in one of these red rocking chairs. And I remember just big cheesy grin, and. One of the most important photos, at least by my memory, was one of a large family photo, and and they were all dressed in their finest. And despite the idea that my mother's family did not come with means, or from, from means, my grandfather was dressed in a gray suit, and all seven of the ladies in the photo had dresses on. Clearly, my grandfather was outnumbered. And each photo in the house, though, was, was sort of a marker. And uh, oftentimes they would even provoke and, and stir up questions in my mind. Grandma, who, who is this? Who, who's that in the photo? And maybe it would be somebody that I knew but just looked entirely different. And uh, where was this taken at? And so I want to talk to you tonight about memories. I thought it was interesting just how the Lord works in our praise service and how the Holy Spirit sets up our time together and just how many fight songs we had. And, and, uh, and so we're going to be talking about the book of Joshua tonight, which is all about fighting and war and conquest. And so I invite you, if you would, you can go ahead and turn over to the book of Joshua. As you're turning over there, let me just give you some background I think it'll be helpful. As the nation of Israel was being birthed many hundred years prior to the book of Joshua, that birthing took place with a promise. And what promises they were. If you know the story, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and so on, they were going to be God's chosen people. These were the promises that God gave Abraham in the very beginning. And the promise would be that God's people would also be blessed. Their seed would also bless the whole earth. And so these great, incredible, magnificent promises that God made through the nation of Israel. And if that wasn't enough, over in Genesis chapter 17, Genesis 17 verse 8, here's another big promise that the nation of Israel took on as God birthed them. And he says, And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, 
for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so that was the promise. A lot of you guys are familiar with this promise, right? The nation of Israel was given the promised land, the, the, the land of Canaan, and they were to go and seize this land. Now, not too long after the promise was made, Israel got themselves in a bind. And uh, they got into a bind with the world. They ended up being enslaved in Egypt. And God showed himself strong. If you read through the story of the Exodus, he delivered them with his mighty hand. That was our God. Our God did that. He, He used 10 plagues and he worked to prove that God alone is God. That's it, and and there's a whole lot of doctrine and history there and inspiration we could go into. But true to God's word, he set them in the direction of the promised land after they were across the Red Sea. But wouldn't you know it, once that freed people who also witnessed the 10 plagues, these 10 majestic works that God used to deliver them, the same people who witnessed that They saw how good the land was. They sent spies in to see the land. And and wouldn't you know, though, even with that, they chose fear over God's promises and rejected God's word to them. They're not a whole lot unlike you and I sometimes. And you know what happened? God gave them exactly what they wanted. God gave them what they wanted. They wanted to be afraid. Well, God allowed them to be afraid. God gave them that fruit. And he ended up, you know, we think of it as a blessing, and it certainly was his mercy, but he ended up spoon-feeding them manna for 40 years in the desert. Manna, a picture of God's word, and an entire generation, God's love and mercy and kindness, he spoon-feeds them manna, yet they're never able to realize the promised land for themselves. And rather than take this approximately two-week journey up the road to claim God's promises, rather than do that, their lack of faith in God's word caused them to suffer loss. And 40 years were past, wandering in the wilderness until all the old guard had died off. So by the time our story comes along, God had raised up Moses' disciple, Joshua. Joshua was for you and I, a type of Jesus Christ to lead this next generation. But for the nation of Israel, this new Israel, he was a commander, a proven warrior, a general. And this new generation, they were ignorant of God's ways. But God would still call them out to claim his promises, to renew those truths that he gave to Abraham. Now, if you get to Joshua, and and you're up with us at this point, we fast-forwarded through a lot. But if you get to Joshua, new Israel, and I don't mean that doctrinally, I just mean the new generation of Israel, is on this renewed path to obedience. And they are intent, based upon the promise that God gave them, to take the land. God prepares them in this first chapter of Joshua with his word to stand and be courageous Be strong, he tells them. And they continue to prepare. And they commit to serve and to fear Joshua. And and God sets up Joshua and he he lets the people know, just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. That's what he tells them. And he elevates Joshua to this position where the men and women fear him. As they march northward, there's two significant obstacles in their path. And there's really no avoiding these obstacles. They come around over the Red Sea, and then they start heading up north, if you know your geography of the Middle East, and they're kind of running parallel to the Jordan River. And they've got to cross back over to the west. For some reason, God has a plan to bring them over into Canaan and deliver this promised land to them. And so these two obstacles, a river, Jordan, in which they must cross, And this would be logistically impassable. Now, if it was just a couple guys, yeah, they'd just grab a canoe, maybe paddle across, swim over on their horses, I don't know. But if you read the text, and there gives a little bit of insight in Joshua chapter 4 of just how many people 
were part of this. Tens of thousands of people represented just the men of war of two of the half-tribes. And so probably, most likely, if you just do the math, you're talking about a nation of tribes of about 2.5 million people, logistically impassable for a nation the way God had it drawn up. And just on the other side, if you were just to look across this river as it was flooding over the banks this time of the year, this big fortified city, this fortress of a place called Jericho awaited. As Joshua prepares the people, they're given some instructions of faith and I think you have a handout there, and I just gave a sort of a preview. These instructions of faith that God had given to people. And, and if you look at these real close, for us in the New Testament, this resembles a lot like discipleship, right? We're, we're to count the cost. And God tells them to count the cost, but then go ahead and obey me anyway. That's what he says. Go ahead and obey me. And so what do they do? They send out spies, just like their fathers did, but... And just like their fathers, they came back with a good report, but this time with faith. And so the instruction was to gain new ground, to cross over this impassable river, all two and a half approximate million people. And we have to do that because to defeat an obstacle, to overcome a stronghold in our life, we have to learn how to have victory over things that we've been unable to overcome in the past. Isn't that true for all of us? Like for you and I to move forward in faith, we can't stay exactly where we are today. We have to trust God for that growth, that move forward in a position where we've not yet been before, where God has not given us or we've not claimed the victory. And they do it. Joshua 3 concludes and, and they're, they're standing and they cross over and God gives them further instruction because we know that just being momentarily victorious is not enough. We have to ensure, and I know that this, this resonates with me, we have to ensure that the ground isn't given back. Amen? I mean, isn't that our hope, our prayer, that, that the, the ground that God gives us, the territory that God gives us, the, the victories that we have, that we don't relent and give those back? That's my prayer. It's my prayer for this church, for mine, for myself, my family. And so they're told to stand your ground, and they stand there literally at the place where the priests were given the promises, standing in God's promises. And so this is a lot like discipleship. And what do you know? They, they go through these steps, these instructions of faith, and guess what happens? It works. God comes through. God's plan works. And by the time Joshua 3 ends, for the first time in their lives, they see victory by God's hand. This is new for them. Their parents had not shown them how to have victory in the Lord. Have you ever been there? I mean, without a doubt, I have been there. God has told me some truth, some instruction, but I've never done it this way before. This is, a new, this is new territory, so maybe I'm a little nervous about taking that step. But God's spirit was too compelling, his word too clear, and, and the nudge for my brothers and sisters, just, just enough to cause me to take a step of faith, however small, in the direction that God had told me. And so this is what they do. And just like them, as that victory takes hold in our life and we begin to mature, we realize that these victories are not just for you and me. It's not just so that you and I can live the best version of ourselves, but it's so that you and I can be living billboards of God's work. So that we can show to all the world how awesome God is. That God did something in my life. So I'm going through this and, and man, I'm just... I'm wondering, why did the prior generation fail? Maybe some of you guys know the story. And, but why was this generation ignorant? This generation that's now walking forward in faith, why were they ignorant of God's ways? I want us to pick up in Joshua chapter 4, because after Joshua chapter 3, after this great victory, after the work is being done, and they cross over, I mean, anybody in a place of victory tonight? 
I mean, ooh yeah, right, because in Christ, I mean, at least that. In Jesus Christ, we have victory. But some of us, I know that it's even more specific, that you've got practical ways in which God has moved in your life and you've claimed victory. I want you to read along with me uh, Joshua chapter 4 and just follow along and we're going to go down to verse 9. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe of man, and command you them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood, firm twelve stones, and you shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. And Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them unto the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the ark of the covenant stood. And there they are unto this day. Huh. Kind of weird, right? You read this, and it's like God, God plops down at Israel after this mighty work with a couple of the tribes on the advanced armed team for battle and and then he just decides to have this devotional right outside the gates of this stronghold city. Now when I think about my church back in Boston, when I think about Midtown, the Living Faith churches that are here all over the country, the people that are supported globally, the partnerships that exist. It's hard not to see the victories. I mean, right? When I come together, and it's just good, it's good to be here and be able to sing and praise the Lord and just raise our hands without care and just give all to the Lord and look around, look to my left and right, and I see other people doing the same and and I know why, it's not, nobody's putting, I mean, there might be some putting on a show, but I know that people are, are raising their hands to glorify God because even if nobody else knows what's going on in their life, they know God's been at work. Victory has been taking place. And, and this is what I see, these Jordan River crossings. I know that battles take place in your churches because They take place in my church too. People on their knees begging God to move and God comes through. You know, last year, some of you in this room, I would just wager we're we're probably lost. And this might be the very first mission focus you've ever experienced as a child of God washed in the blood of his son. That's a victory. Some of your marriages last year were in disarray, and now there's hope. Some children were wayward, now walking in the well-lit path of God's light. Some of you were in a rut, and this year you're reading your Bibles. Whereas some of you last year were attending a Bible study, this year you're starting a Bible study. Some of you last year were introduced to the idea of missions, and this year you're praying about going on a missions trip. Whereas some of you have long hearkened God's word to be steady, plowing in your field, and now God is calling, beckoning you to some near or far off place to go and perhaps never return, like Brother Sean talked about. And as these battles rage on, as the victories 
come upon us and as we engage God's Word and trust Him throughout our churches, I know that men and women are bearing down under the cross, crying out for the only one who can do the real work. I mean, the real work. The real movement. The real stopping. The real cutting off of the waters. This is what I see right now, and it's fun. I enjoy it. You know, ministry is not easy all the time. Church planning is gritty. It can be rough and tumble, but man, there's not a day that I would give it up for anything. Just watching God move and have triumph and leading people into victory. You know, there's probably a sermon I've preached where this is where I would just stop, right here. Just, just resting in God's word, amen? Like, we could literally just stop there and, and that would be it. Full, full stop, there's a life for you. Just to presently abide in God's promises. Having victory day by day, that would be great. I mean, that would be really incredible. But for tonight, for, for mission focus, do we call it 22 or 23? Whatever it is, 22, 23, mission focus. I think we need to see this for where we are. And I think for this battle posture that we have, I think for it to have long-term meaning, I think for it to have effect on future generations, I think for our children to be able to see it, I think for our disciples to be able to see it, I think for longevity, I think we have to keep the mission at all times looking like a mission. And I think that in order to do that, I think we have to put some markers down for the next generation. And so tonight I just want to talk to you really briefly in the time we've got left about building a legacy of faith. And specifically, making memories count. I want to talk to you about making memories count or how to make memories count for God's mission. You know, memories can be good, memories can be bad. I told you about my, my grandmother's house. I could go on and on about those photographs. There was another photo that, that all the grandchildren ended up being a part of, and it replaced the big old family photo. And that was, that was special to me because I was part of that one. And I remembered it was at a family reunion. I could taste the hot dog still and, and, and you know, catch the Frisbee and remember just joking around with my uncles. And I was part of that one. I remember another memory at my grandmother's when I was much younger, and this was a common memory. She would sometimes watch me as my mother would go to work, and I would go over, and, and this is just branded into my mind, be coming up, and it was still dark out, and I'd, we'd walk into her small living room, and there she was, with her back to the door, the readers on, lamp not to wake anybody else in the house and her Bible open every day, every time we came over. Just imprinted into my mind. Memories can be good, memories can be bad. For those of you in, in the Bible, you know that sometimes the past is bad, right? You know that sometimes we're supposed to cast things down. Many thoughts have no place in our minds. Those memories in the past can do much harm, actually. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see in verses 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, those things that come in conflict with God, we reject those. And of course, we know that our past can play a big role in that too. Philippians chapter 3 Verse 13 and 14, brethren, Paul says, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth into those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the, high, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So we know that, right? Casting down imaginations, pressing toward the mark, forgetting those things which are behind. Many of us could, could 
preach and teach sermons and give that counsel. Very, and wise. Very, I mean, it's the word of God. The Bible tells us to do that. But do all, do all memories, do all thoughts need cast down? Did the Bible say to forget everything in the past? Well, I think you guys know the totality of Scripture would say no. If you're constantly wiping your hard drive, just not just every time you turn around, well, there's another day in the books. Just, you just wake up the next day blank again. I don't know, I guess that's one, one way to live, but... Now, don't get confused. I mean, missions and church planting, it does take, like I said, a bit of grit. There's a tenacity, a willingness to biblically die to self, but and we have to learn how to die in context of Christ also being alive in us. There has to be that exchange. If, if we don't, we run the risk of becoming dead-eyed psychopaths in Jesus' name. Just void of experience, feeling, and emotion, just blank. And men, let me speak to you. Those of you men that are coming up and trusting the Lord to grow into that role of ministry that God calls you, this is a particular danger, I think, for us. So let me just give you a word of warning. You and I risk losing our families our spouses, our children, for the mission's sake when we don't do this right, when we fail to make our memories count for something. Moses probably was the one that kicked this off for this generation. I mean, he's, he's one of my, maybe the favorite Bible character of mine, Moses is, and he, he's the greatest leader, at least to this point, Israel would ever see, and Yet something didn't get passed down. Over in Exodus chapter 24, we're not going to turn over there, but you guys can go look at the story. Exodus chapter 24, God was pretty upset with Moses. In fact, he was about ready to kill Moses. It appeared Moses was so focused on the work that he forgot the very, the very one thing that God had, that wasn't intentional, that God had called him to do. If you know the story, back in Exodus chapter 24, it was his wife. His wife had to come and sharpen their son's pencil because Moses had failed to do so. <laughs> and guess what? When the new generation comes out of the wilderness, none of the new generation, none of new Israel had their pencil sharpened, if you know what I mean. Like, zero how is that possible? Like one generation away from the miracles, they literally know that they are in the wilderness because of their lack of belief. They know God is spoon-feeding them sustenance every day, and they come out clueless. I think Moses probably has something to do with that. I think that example, I don't know, maybe it's not inherited bad behavior. But you see, here's the dilemma we run the risk of so fiercely, I mean, I, I know our churches. I visited several of our churches, and it's just, it's a blessing to be a part of them. But we run the risk, and myself included, I, I am preaching to myself, probably more than anybody in this room, about what I'm about to say. We run the risk of so fiercely making the work work that over time we fail to pass down how the true work actually gets done. So here's what I'm talking about when I say building a legacy of faith. I mean, making it so that relying on God ought to be a repeatable and known option for future generations. We ought to be focused on how to make relying on God a repeatable and known option for future generations. I can just see Moses just buried up to his eyeballs. Jethro's over there giving him some backup, judging some people, and Aaron, you know, Miriam over there just, you know, doing their thing. And 
he's just up, you know, up to his eyeballs and oh, the last thing I've got time for is circumcision. And then it's like, God's like, oh yeah? And he about kills him. His wife saves his, his rear. And so I just want to talk about this for a little bit. We'll go through really quick points. As we rest in our victories and, and praise the Lord for our victories, amen? Like that, I wasn't just setting you up. Like I really am thankful for the victories that God has in my life. I'm so thankful for the lives being changed in our church back home, in the church here, and all over the Living Faith Fellowship. But we need to be faithful to make a plan of remembrance for future generations. I mean, how sweet, if you're at Midtown, I didn't get to catch a lot of it, but how sweet was it this year that you guys were able to celebrate 15 years and just take some time and clear off some space and just remember what God had done. In our passage tonight in Joshua chapter 4, that very first verse, it says, as soon as they clean passed over, God opens his mouth and starts talking. I mean, as soon as like the last guy steps off the, the flooded plain, it's like, all right, God's like, okay, pause. Hold up. And he makes them look back. He makes them turn back to where they just came from. And so here's point number one. If we're to build a legacy of faithfulness, we must learn to pause, to reflect upon what God has done. If you and I are to build a legacy of faithfulness, something that gets passed down, not just the work for the work's sake, but to know who's actually doing the real work, the true work, then we've got to take time, from time to time, to pause to reflect upon what God has done. I think so often our lives are running so fast, it's just too hard to debrief. That's what we tell ourselves. Those important moments just get swept under the rug, that they're just flying by us like we're flying on a highway of good works unto the Lord. And, and I get it, sometimes there are seasons where having the privilege to pause just isn't there. I mean, I think about like a field commander out you know, in the middle of a battle, like they're probably not just gonna be like, tweet, time out, you know, bring my guys together. You guys hold on just a sec, would you mind? pausing the artillery. I get it. Sometimes we just don't have time to do that, but one of the great values of pausing is that you and I get to take inventory and grapple with the big questions and really let them sink in. Why did I have to go through this? And you see, chapter 4, if you read the rest of it, it's kind of a retelling of what happened in chapter 3. God's, he's telling them again, remember you went back and I had you go across it and I had the 12, I had you pick out 12 men and, and I'm going to tell you why I had you pick out these 12 men. They're going to carry these, these stones across the river with them and God's retelling the story to them. So they're grappling with these questions. How, how did I get myself into this or that? Or how did, how did these, these events take place that needed, that, that would lead me to where I needed to be transformed by God in the first place? What lack did I have? What can I learn from this? Who was involved? Now, sometimes an experience is just so visceral that you don't need a lot of mental exercises like that. I mean, they just are thrust upon you. Some victory that takes place, some, some massive event, and, and you're just holding on for your life. And those are more involuntary but so regularly, I think our acts of faith where we believed God in spite of what our circumstances were telling us. You ever been there? Like everybody, all your old peers and your friends are telling you like, yeah, keep doing the same thing, that same thing that you always do that always fails, but just keep doing it, we're all doing it. And this time you decide, I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna trust God. And you saw God move. You see, that narrative of those past victories will undoubtedly be challenged. You guys get that? You understand that? That's why we warn people when, when we're baptizing them, and we, we warn them right out the bat, and we, we charge the church to let people know, hey, you got to be behind this brother or sister who's about to get wet, because it's about to get serious in their life. 
when somebody makes a decision of faith, and look out, the enemy knows, and they're going to question the narrative. They're going to try to twist up what those past victories were all about, challenging the history. Did that really happen? Maybe challenging the reasoning, justifying that it must be just some one-off event. Ah, yeah, well, God's good for a season. Yet it is our very acts of faithfulness in those times of adversity and challenge that actually build our faith. It's those things that continue and and give us confidence to keep moving forward that end up building a resume of faithfulness that we can look back from time to time and and see, like, man, God, God did these things. God did these things in my life. And so we keep trusting him. But what would happen, though? What would happen if we didn't have a a resume of faithfulness? What would happen, like, every time you just trusted God for something, you never took time to pause and reflect, and and you just wipe the hard drive every single time? What would happen? You had no recollection of what was done before, and every single time you're, you're having to go through the calculus Oh, does God exist? Is he going to help me? Is God good? All those old questions that you've struggled through and had victory over. Now, some would want to live this way out of rebellion. Others just are weak. But I think God thinks so highly of this, that this idea of setting out markers of you and I taking time to put these milestones, these landmarks He speaks of it many times in Scripture. There are other examples of this. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28. He uses Solomon here to tell his son, remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Now, if you grew up in a household that that did this, man, praise the Lord. If you didn't, we would do well to embrace this tradition, to implement a practice in your life, maybe you're the one that's going to make this change and you're going to trust God to begin implementing this practice of telling and retelling the victories that God has wrought. And, and, and providing a way for which future generations can see that God is a viable and repeatable option to do work. You know, as a parent, I, I know how it is. We want our children to grow up, and I think especially in, in post-postmodern world, we want them, and even believers, and I think there's some healthiness to this, we want our kids to be able to make their own decisions, and they'll do so in time, but it's a subtle thing, it's a dangerous one, I think, for you and I to, to attempt to just give them complete free reign without setting up these markers in their life. And we want to wait, and the world will tell us to wait. Wait until the world puts markers in their life. Wait until they're met with adult temptations and ignorantly conclude that worshiping God is not worth it. That's why we we have to come to God as children. Even as adults, with childlike faith, having seen the markers in the lives of other people, having seen these landmarks, these stones set up. I mean, we don't think... I mean, it's it's laughable in Boston for me to say this, but we don't think like their elementary school is going to teach them about the landmarks of God, do we? How God worked. Do we we think that our middle school teachers, high school, college professors, you think the marketplace is going to do it? You see, the enemies of God, they're, they're not ambiguous about these things. And I think sometimes we want to we posit that like it's some sort of virtue. They're not ambiguous about hating God's truth. And so if we're to build a legacy of faith, you've got to pause to reflect on what God has done. And then the second thing is you need to be deliberate about making good memories. Be deliberate about making good memories. Shortly after we were married, uh, my wife Meredith over here, many of you know Meredith, two young kids, a mortgage, car payments, cat. (laughs) It's like over the edge. Dog. All this going on. That's that's when I thought it would be a good idea for me to go back to law school. (laughs) And... uh, 
and I remember those years fondly, but also with an enormous amount of stress. And the sacrifice my family went through to make that happen was, was immense, and that's, that's an understatement. One of those sacrifices was just the inability, financially speaking, to do the fun things. The things that are enjoyable. I mean, vacations were rare, if, if existent at all. Lavish outings, non-existent. Some gift giving around the holidays and birthdays, they just didn't happen. And uh, we were coming out of it and could see the light, even though it was still just in the midst of craziness. One of the things that we wanted to prioritize, and my wife had the wisdom to sort of pull us aside, and, and uh, for all the hardness that our family had endured through that process, we wanted to make sure that we were building good memories. And so we began to plan to build, however limited they might be, just special occasions. A little day trip across town, a meal out. I mean, we're talking to a fast food restaurant. I mean, a special occasion that we could mark and focus on as a family to build good, positive memories together. And I'm so thankful. You know, as I was finished up school and then building my career and staying busy up to my eyeballs in church, then my wife had the wisdom to slow me down. And uh, in particular, involve key people. And that was really important. And, and so for us to be deliberate about making good memories, we've got to involve the key people. In our story in Joshua chapter 4, the same 12 men that had been recruited back in Joshua chapter 3, God now has this very specific purpose for them. And they're going to be tactically involved at an important level. I know it's easy for you and I just to say, well, you know, great intentions and all, but how much better would it be if our great intentions actually panned out? One of the hard changes I think that must take place to do this is that you and I have to engage people right where they're at. And while I think it's easier for you and I to get lost in the stuff, the things, the big picture, making the work work, God actually calls us to lose ourselves in loving others, especially those for whom he has entrusted the care unto you, your spouse, your church, your kids, your employees, your parents, your neighbors. And loving others means that we learn, as we have been, how to esteem others better than ourselves, taking interest in their interests. Now, we don't compromise the mission. I'm not suggesting that we placate to the lowest common denominator. What I'm suggesting is that just like Christ did, we pursue the people that God's given us. So here in Joshua, we're told specifically that these 12 leaders, the same ones in chapter 3 that were instrumental in crossing the river, he made them part of it. Verses 2 and, and 3 talk about this. And they weren't spectators watching God's hand at work. They were the, the, the glove, so to speak, on God's hand. You see that? As God moved, he put them on, and what a privilege. How powerful is that, that these men were able to be a part of this memory? When we involve key people in the memory-making process, it's powerful. If you notice in verse 3, Joshua is specifically told to use these stones that were removed from the Jordan itself. I thought that was interesting. He could have just crossed over the Jordan and just said, okay, you made it. Now you're in the promised land. Go ahead and pick up some of these stones. You're in the good ground now. But no, he tells them to go back and pick up stones out of the river itself. And then the weirdest thing, like take them into their homes all night long. And so after the nation just went through this harrowing and victorious spectacle, God asked them, okay, I want you to ponder on this. So much so that I want you to bring these things where you're lodging tonight so that you wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and there they are. Whoa, yeah. The river stones. There they are again. And so if we're going to be deliberate about making good memories, we have to include or involve key people, but we also have to include 
the challenges. I think this is, this is key, and I think sometimes this is where these ideas of us pressing toward the mark and casting down imagination, sometimes we wanna just forget the challenges. We don't want to focus on them, obviously. We don't want to idolize them, for sure. But as God gives us victory, we wanna be able to remember them, not to ignore the obstacles. They were even told to make them prominent. And so pause to reflect on what God has done, be deliberate about making good memories, and finally be faithful to retell the stories. They were to be a memorial to future generations. I'm just imagining as they cross the river and they're smacked up against the eastern border of Jericho, that's what the Bible says there, and they, they erect the 12 stone, and it says the Bible, Joshua's told to pitch them there, and so who knows what it looked like, but he builds this tower, and they're on the plain, and it was flooded out. The distance between a, the regular river and, and the walls of Jericho were two miles on the flat plain, but this is in the flood season, and so, I don't know, maybe they were, maybe they were a quarter mile out from the city. Put up these stones. A couple chapters later, God tells the people to march around this wall. Go all around the city, this great fortified fortress of Jericho. So big, so massive, they could drive chariots on top of the wall around it. And here they were with nothing but just themselves. They're going to walk around the city, walk around. You can just imagine, I mean, they had it in their DNA, right? That fear could have been there just walking around, and, and God wants to present the obstacle so he can show them just how big and bad Jericho is. And then they're coming around. I don't know, if it was me, I think maybe get halfway around, just start getting a little nervous. Whoa, here we are, we got nothing. Look at this wall, and they're coming around and making it around, and, oh, and there's the river. Oh man, remember the river? Oh yeah, we slept with those rocks all night. Coming around and they get to that final stretch. And there's that pillar of rocks just right there, just that pitch of rocks, those stones representative of what God had done in their life. And he gets them up, he tells them, I want you to do it again tomorrow and do it again the next day and the next day. And 13 times that final day, they march around it. You see, God wanted them not just to see how big and bad the enemy is, but to remember how awesome his hand is to deliver. And he set them up for this. It's so key that we do this. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and 13. Let me close with this. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith Virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience. These are stones. These are things that God has done in our life. And to knowledge, temperance, and temperance, patience, and patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Skip down to verse 12. Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. And this is why we meet. This is why as a mission it's so critical if we want to keep and build a legacy of faith where future generations can see and recall that it's not just the work for the work's sake, but it's the mighty hand of God who cut off the river. It's the mighty hand of God who saved us by his right arm. It's the mighty hand of God that will send you to the mission field and sustain you and do the work through you. We can't neglect to put one another in remembrance of this. We've got to do these things. We've got to pause. We've got to make our memories count. We've got to be deliberate. We've got to retell our stories. And so, do you want me to close it out? you want me to close it out tonight? Okay. So, 
Let me just, I put some questions up here. I just want you to examine yourself and have faith. And I'm gonna ask the praise team to go ahead and come forward. I want you to just take a look at the board. In this chapter, you see that the nation makes haste to obey. Are we making memories count? Maybe, maybe you're in here and you don't even have a track record of faith to remember. I think it's interesting that Joshua starts off saying when they were clean, passed over. I don't know, I think God likes to use puns from time to time. and I think clearly there's an expression of clarity where obviously the people had clean, passed over the river. And there was a mark there that they'd passed. But I think there's something for you and I to see. And, and I think if, if we're not sure if we are clean, we ought to make sure of that. Maybe you don't have a, a, a marker, a track record of faith because you never called upon Jesus Christ as Lord. And so let me just invite you, if that's you tonight, you ought to make that right. You ought to reckon Christ to be the Lord of your life, sufficient to pay all of the debt of your sin because Amen. of what he did on the cross. Maybe you're there already. And maybe it's just, maybe it's just about you learning to slow down You know, the next chapter, Joshua chapter 5, Joshua almost didn't slow down, and he about went headlong into the captain of the Lord of hosts. And so I think this chapter is for us. Like, we got to be careful, getting so busy, just so fired up in the work, so amped about what God is doing that we just don't, we don't slow down enough to remember that it's God's hand upon this. It's God's hand upon us. And so, if God spoke to you with that tonight, I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask the Lord to move throughout this, this room. If there's business you need to take care of with the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to, to you can come forward as the, as the praise team leads us out and just surrender that to God. Maybe you need to start making memories. Maybe you need to start being deliberate. Stop risking where the real work is being done. And let's not risk our families, the things that the people that God has entrusted us with. And let's trust God to make memories count for his kingdom. Amen? All right, guys, I'm going to pray and then turn it over to you guys. If you've got business to do with the Lord tonight, though, I'm just going to invite you to come down. You can, you can do it right in your seat as well. And just beg God to move in your heart and to change you in a way where you start putting up those landmarks. God, we, we need you. Lord, I pray that you would work in us. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who maybe is just given over to the mission, but maybe just going so fast, just so subtle, Lord, that, that we can get so in love with the work that sometimes we forget who the worker is, you, the, the real worker. And so, God, I pray that you would just arrest us, bring us into submission that we might pause and look back on the things that you've, you've worked victory over us in. God, we need you for that. We, we want to see our children to know that you're a real option. Not to be confused, not to look on us like Lot's kids and laugh, but Lord, that we've set up real memories, God. I, I, I pray that we would do so. I pray for our disciples, God, that we would be able to slow down and, and demonstrate the mission in a way that's repeatable. They can know it. God, if there's anybody in here that does not know you, I pray, Lord, that they would give themselves to you tonight, that they would have the courage to be strong and be obedient in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.